Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Previously on Climbing Gold. It's this 2,000 foot, 18 pitch climb um, in the Northwest Territories of Canada. He said, what do you want, want to do with your, your body? And I said, well, I wanna, I wanna cycle, I wanna ride my bicycle, I wanna drive a car, and I, I most certainly wanna return to mountain climbing. I, I couldn't imagine life without climbing. After my accident and kind of near-death experience and realizing that I can climb again after amputation, I was like, well, like what, what sort of dream trips have I not gone on that I that I really I've wanted to do for a long time, and that was that was one of them. I looked at the void below my knees, and I and I saw potential in that loss. And then I met these people, and I was like, oh, they own that label of being disabled, and they rock it and they kick ass. So maybe I am one too. Today on Climbing Gold, we present a two-part series, Adapted, a story about human potential, generational friendships, and the power of climbing. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. Keep moving. Get moving. Stay moving. From the halls of MIT, in gyms across the country, and remote spires, there is a movement happening. Humans will be unrecognizable from what we are today. We're not here to inspire other people. If anything, we're here to inspire ourselves and maybe to inspire our own communities. This is a decades-long story about how people gather, adapt, and create to push climbing, our community, and maybe even humankind. When I go under the knife, I'll finally become a cyborg. Movement is life. Part 2. Reimagining the Present. You've always been pretty open about the fact that you were a bad student growing up, but now you're a full-on MIT professor. I toured your lab at MIT, and it all is incredibly futuristic and very classy. So talk about bridging that gap from terrible student and, you know, sort of full-time climber to eventually being, I would say, I would dare say a very respectable professor. Well, thank you, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I should hope so at MIT. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I was doing these various climbs in the Northeast that were rated X and uh, really getting ex emotionally exhausted at pushing the limits of my own safety. Um, I also suffered a tendonitis in my left arm. It also, um, I, I realized that I, I had to have a profession that involved computers and sitting down. I couldn't, I couldn't have a job like my brothers pursued uh, in the construction business where I'd be on my legs all day long. So all that drove me to, to the classroom. And I entered Millersville University, a small state school near my family's home. And I started taking, you know, very basic math and physics and computer science. I was ill prepared for college because I did everything in high school not to attend classes. Um, <laughs> And I, you know, when I graduated high school, if you would ask me, what is 10% of a hundred, I'd have no idea because I, I, <laughs> I was clueless as to what a percent even was. So I, I got these math books and I started reading and I was like, oh, that's really simple. Oh, that's really simple. Started to take these math courses and just fell in love with it. 
And I, and I realized there's this beautiful connection between rock climbing and science and mathematics. So when you on-site a climb, you know, it's, you kind of imagine your body going through sequences so that it's, there's an intelligence to climbing where you can rapidly recognize sequences. They're sequences of your own body. They're not number sequences, but nonetheless, recognizing these elaborate patterns is a skill I think I developed in climbing that really helped me in mathematics. So I just, you know, so that time period, I, I went from, you know, being obsessed with climbing with, to being obsessed with mathematics and physics and computer science. And then later inventing, I was not happy with the functionality of my artificial limbs. The limbs that were given to me were passive. They had no computational intelligence, no sensing, no actuation. They were so far removed from what Hollywood's view of what a bionic limb should be. So I really, I, I, at that point, when I, when I realized I love science and math, I really had it as, as my life's mission to, to redesign uh, bionic systems so that they actually work. That raises the, the obvious question. I mean, at what level were bionic systems when your legs were amputated and where are they now? My first pair of artificial limbs, again, were completely passive. They were made of, of, of wood and foam, some plastics. In terms of limbs that are controlled by a computer, that was only happening within research laboratories for the most part. So today, there's bionic limbs that are commercially available that are controlled by multiple computer computers, many, many sensors. They have an onboard intelligence that can sense um, human intent and respond appropriately. And now we're actually entering a new era where the limbs are actually controlled by the brain and can actually be sensed by the brain in terms of natural proprioception and cutaneous responses. You're saying that now we're entering a, a phase where people can actually feel their prosthetic limb. That's right. I'm like that's. I feel like there's a lot of unpacking that you need there. Like, so what does that mean? I mean, I I, I personally was lucky enough to watch your TED talk in person about this, which totally blew my mind oh, at the time. Right. I was like, that was the craziest thing I've ever heard. But you know, for anybody listening, like, what the heck does that mean? You know, it's like it's so crazy. So it used to be that the prosthesis was a tool, like a hammer is a tool that it's separate from the body with respect to the human being. It, it's viewed as such. It's viewed as other, not part of self. Um, these systems now, we actually do surgeries and we grow tissues into synthetic constructs. We basically connect nerves and muscles right to synthetic computers and synthetic motors. Um, and when you do that level of integration between human physiology and and electromechanics, the human becomes embodied with the designed limb. When you ask them, what is your body? They include the designed construct. So we're, mm -hmm. at, we're at a point in history where we're going, as a species, we're going beyond mere tool use into something that's far more profound and deep. Humans will be unrecognizable from what we are today. You know, the classic is if you want a third arm, you can have a third arm, but we're, we're going to human morphology and dynamics and cognition will, will take on forms that we cannot even conceive today.
I sometimes get comments from people about, well, look at, you know, look at that foot you're using. And I wish I could have one of those or uh, <laughs> it must be, that's almost like cheating because you can stand on dimes and, and whatever. But I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, you could get one of these, but like something pretty serious has to happen before. <laughs> yeah, something some yeah. terrible has to happen first. In 2014, I had a really bad climbing accident, sport climbing in the Caribbean, of all things. Like <laughs> the ultimate after, vacation destination. <laughs> yeah. After, after a lifetime of doing really stupid, sketchy shit in the mountains and, and getting away with it, I almost get killed on a sport climb in the Caribbean. In, the, in that accident, I, I broke a lot of stuff. I like fully broke my pelvis, uh, my wrist, shoulder, my ankle. Uh, several vertebrae, like I really got seriously fucked up and really just barely survived. A year and a half later, or a year later, most everything had healed, but um, but my ankle was still toast and really painful. And the local doctors wouldn't, um, they wouldn't talk to me about doing anything for one full year after the accident. And at the end of that one year, uh, they discovered that my, my talus bone was necrotic, dead. I had no cartilage left. Um, and the main fracture had not healed. I did a lot of research on how to repair these sort of things. And really what I was finding was, was not looking great. It wasn't looking promising. I gave Hugh a call because I knew that he was, he was at MIT and that he was well-connected in the research side of prosthetics and um, perhaps even on the surgical side of all of this stuff. So I thought he might have a connection or, or a, a pipeline to maybe some experimental surgery that could salvage my ankle. And I added at the end of that, and I said, and, and if not, then what would life as an amputee look like for me at this point? And he said, well, I'll, I'll connect you to a, uh, a couple of people. But as for amputation, he said, well, we've, we've developed a new amputation protocol and we haven't tried it out yet. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, he had actually, he had heard about my accident and he was like, God, oh, that's, that's really pretty awful. And I went and met him at the lab and we talked a whole lot about, well, talked about, we, we got caught up. We talked about past friends and things going on in climbing and then what was going on new for, for prosthetics and the new amputation protocol. And <laughs> Hugh, Hugh relates this story that like I was in, in tears and I, I don't remember that, but it's, it's possible. Like I was, I was in a pretty bad way and like just in constant pain and you know Hugh I think he just like he wanted to help me somehow or he knew that he had to do something Hugh related to me that he he had known these people who had gone through multiple multiple surgeries to rebuild their ankle for like decades like 20 plus years and finally they give in they get the amputation and they're like, man, why, why did I wait? 
Like, why did I wait so long? I went through all of that and like, I could have been back doing what I love much faster, much sooner. Even after surgeries and physical therapy, he could not take a walking step without excruciating pain. And Jim came to me and said, I'm thinking my life would be better if, if my leg were amputated. And his timing was perfect because we had just invented this new bionic reconstruction at MIT. So that offers proprioception. Amputation surgery is one of the oldest surgeries in the human timeline. But again, makes sense because it's the simplest. Right. <laughs> you just cut it off. But because it's viewed by society in a negative way, because it's viewed as a surgical failure, mm. but the, the medical team tried to save the limb. Oh, we failed. So just cut it off. Because of that attitude, um, it really hasn't been a, a source of focus in terms of research until recently. Now there's tremendous work. But that's got to be a little bit scary to give up part of your biological body because you just don't know. You're like, oh, God, and once it's gone, you're never getting it back. The formula for me was at my age, at the time of the accident, it's like, well, how, how much do I want to chase trying to rebuild this ankle? And, you know, how much time do I have left realistically to spend time in the mountains and go on climbing expeditions and you know, what's going to get me back there the fastest? Going through ankle surgery every couple of years or one and done? It turns out Jim was very courageous and volunteered to be the first human to undergo this bionic reconstruction. We'll be back with more after the break. Six months after that conversation, I was the first patient to undergo this new procedure. And, and is, is, is that, I mean, were you alarmed about being the first person to receive a new surgical procedure, a, a new type of amputation? You would think that that might, might scare somebody, but the thought of amputation at all is such a big thing that it being experimental didn't seem to really matter to me. And... It was kind of funny, actually. The I was supposed to be like patient number two or three, perhaps. But for whatever reason, the other patients had to drop out or withdraw from the running. <laughs> and uh, the surgeon called me up and he said, well, you're, you're up to number one now. And he's like, are you okay with that? And I, I said, well, you know, having an amputation at all is scary enough. So it doesn't matter to me that, it's, that I'm first. And if it goes really badly, like, yeah, they can't put it back on, but they can kind of undo the special nature of the, of the surgery um, if it turns out that it's just ridiculously painful. And I would be a, a standard amputee at that point. Mm -hmm. So this uh, new protocol, this is the, it's a, I'm proud of it, but I'm not proud. I'm yeah, a little it, embarrassed. It, it is they named call after it the you, right? Ewing. Yeah, yeah it's named awesome. after me. So you should be proud of that. It's like, it's like I'll be forever known for my ability to lose body parts. Yeah, but at least you uh, lost it really well. You know, you lost it in the best yeah. possible way. <laughs> it's it was like really gutsy to say, okay, not only 
medical team, hew her, amputate my limb, but try this procedure that's never been tried before in a human being. <laughs> but that's why he gets his name on it. You know, that's the thing about doing first descents. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. when you're willing to do it first, you get, you get naming rights. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's why I labeled Jim Ewing as courageous. Prosthetics have advanced a lot in the last 20, 30 years, um, particularly from Hugh's efforts at, at his lab. Robotic prosthetics kind of far outpace what the human side is capable of controlling. The standard amputation technique has not really changed since the Civil War. So they needed to come up with a better way of doing amputations that would provide the wearer of these new age prosthetics better control of them. So my brain thinks that my foot is still there. So in my particular case, they create these things that they called um, agonist-antagonist myoneural interface, or just AMIs for short, AMI. Exactly. Yeah, so it, it turns out that the relationship, that agonist-antagonist relationship, is what gives us uh, proprioception. It's how we, we know where our limbs are in space without looking at them through proprioception. And, and so what you're describing is connecting the, the pushing and the pulling muscles together. So, so it'd be like tying your bicep to your tricep so that they're still connected at the end. Yeah, okay. And so how different is the prosthetic leg that Jim now has versus the prosthesis that you were designing at the very beginning? He, he has the biological tissues that we constructed for the interfacing. Now, conventional prostheses are not high-tech enough to benefit from these nerve and muscle interfaces that we've created. So only when Jim comes to the lab here at MIT can we hook him up um, and, and make that connection between motors and sensors and his nerves and muscles. Hugh, Hugh coined the, the phrase uh, neural embodiment. And we discovered that when I was wearing the, the first prototype, that really just within a few minutes after getting it tuned, um, the, the foot became part of me. And I started using, like I was fidgeting with it. I was like toe tapping and um, treating it as if it was my own natural limb. That's something that doesn't happen with the traditional amputation model. Like we're getting closer to just being able to, you'll just replace that limb and you won't miss a beat, just like a one, one for one replacement. When he, you know, quote unquote, plugs into one of the legs at the MIT lab, does it feel different to him? Like he suddenly feels his leg? Absolutely. And is, is that kind of awesome? I mean, when he goes from a normal, you know, sort of dumb prosthetic to plugging into the one at the lab, is he like, this is freaking awesome. I have a leg back. Yeah, the, the emotional arc of, of persons that we bring into the lab where we bi-directionally connect their nervous system to the mechatronics is really interesting. Some people start giggling when they, you know, for the first time they can move a bionic limb through thought and they can feel the movement and feel touch. Sometimes people begin crying out of joy. And what's really interesting, they'll come to the lab for a few hours and when they leave, 
we have to, based on policy and IRB rules, we have to take the high-tech limb from them. And then they go home with the low-tech limb that they can't feel and move with their brain. And there, some people experience depression in that transition. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's like having their leg taken away again. Exactly. So we're pushing as, as hard as we can push to finalize, to fully develop the technology, to get it commercialized so that all humans can benefit from these neural interfaces. Yeah, there's two reasons why it's going to spread quickly. One is standard insurance reimburses for the procedure. And that's such a sad reason for something that's so beneficial to take off. And and also the procedure is so teachable. Like you can you can have surgeons on a Zoom call just like this. And mm -hmm. a surgeon can teach other surgeons the technique. And the next day, the taught surgeons can perform the procedure. So given that that frictionless uh, knowledge transfer, I, I think it'll spread very quickly. Is that to say that it's a relatively simple procedure? So, so Alex, it'd be like going back to City Park. Like, you haven't done it, I have. And I'd say, Alex, here's how you do the move. You put left hand up and then the right foot out, you know, and so on. So you know all those moves. It's just the kind of the sequence and putting the blocks together. Yeah, though sadly, I would then try and be like, oh, I still can't do this. I'm like, God damn it, that's hard. But that's what it's yeah. like on these Zoom calls. The this, this surgeon that knows the technique says, do this and then this and then this. And they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I got it. That's cool. It's like, a, it's like an idea whose time has come. You're like, well, it's happening. Do you think that sport is a good way for these technologies to sort of enter the mainstream? I do. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I would say sports and arts. I think like one of, dance. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the most extraordinary demonstrations of human physicality is ballet. Um, in upper extremity, it's playing, you know, uh, these really difficult piano pieces where you can't even see the fingers moving. They're moving so quickly. So I actually have the the research goal to build a bionic leg and a bionic arm that will enable ballet and a person to play a Beethoven piano piece at normal speeds as if the limb were, were made of flesh and bone. Lotus Flower Tower is in uh, Nahani National Park, which is in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Actual, legit, middle of nowhere, edge of Arctic Circle. And it's big. It's one of the, you know, so-called 50 classic climbs of, of North America. And it's this 2,000 foot, 18 pitch climb. Like at this point, Jim and I have been climbing together for a year and he was certainly in a mentorship role. I didn't want to be like just the second. You know, he was a new amputee, so I could help introduce him to the adaptive community. But he was mentoring me in trad climbing and like even alpine, like we would do day alpine trips. And he's just like, okay, we're going to do this big climb and we have four nuts and three camps, go. And I was like, oof, all right. <laughs> but I didn't want to be just like the mentee on this trip. I wanted to carry my own weight and I wanted to lead some pitches. And leading for me can be very insecure, questionable. Sport and trout, all of it, it can just be like not, sometimes it could just not work for me. So it's a little extra heady. So my goal was to like at least lead some of the easy pitches and kind of be more of a partnership versus him hauling my ass up. We wanted it to be an unassisted, all disabled ascent. The lower half of the route, the first like 10 pitches, the, the chimney pitches are loose and chossy and wet and 
lots of flexi holds and flexi flicks. The upper half of the root, the upper 10 pitches are amazing. And it does have like this, it's got this 510 roof and then this 5.9 hand crack above the roof that are just, they're, they're worth the price of admission. And we had terrible weather and a bunch of rockfall and it snowed, it iced. We were kind of at the tail end of the season, had our fights with marmots, you know, the usual stuff. Had to steal some tarps from the French team to survive the rain. The climbing was way headier than I had thought. I guess most of the pitches were 5'8", but it was like the most scary, insecure, moss-ridden, surfing picnic table size blocks 5'8 you've ever seen. And every single pitch was a full 70 meter rope stretcher. And it was just, it was scary. While we were there, Sean Villanova O'Driscoll was there with some of his like high school buddies. And on, I think, pitch three, he ripped a big hold off and (laughs) took a monstrous fall. Like it's, it's pretty sketchy up there. You can't really train for that stuff unless you're doing it. Like you can, I was doing day trips to Rocky Mountain National Park and like trying to do big long climbs in Vegas, but it just like, it doesn't work. You just have to do it. So I kind of went up there feeling unprepared, but in retrospect, I don't think you're ever actually ready for that kind of trip. Our initial intent was to free it in a day fast and light. And we went up there to do like just, we just did a, a couple of first pitches on a good weather day. And we're just like, this rock sucks. Like we were moving way too slow. Like Jim was still a pretty fresh amputee. I was pretty fresh in this terrain. And we're like, we do not have this in a day. We're gonna have to spend the night in the Vivi Ledge doing two. So all of a sudden I'm not climbing with this giant ass pack with our sleeping bags and a stove. And I hadn't trained for that. And so I was just, it was pretty much an ass kicker. And Jim had to lead every pitch because <laughs> it just wasn't going. And the upper pitches were supposed to be better. And the photos look like these big railroad track sinker, like awesome cracks. And they're not. They're just these thin, flary things full of moss and mud. And you're actually balancing on these pebbles and the gear sucks. Um, So again, it was another situation where like that kind of climbing, even if I wanted to lead, there's probably no way for me to safely do it because I would have had to gone truly hands-free because my stump wasn't going to fit in those cracks. And the pebbles, like I couldn't grab with my stump. I couldn't crimp on them. So it would have just been sketch and gnar. Um, And then so we bivvied on the bivvy ledge, which is incredible. My first time ever bivvying on a big wall. You know, we bivvied on the ledge and um, I woke up the next morning and was violently ill. Something was wrong with him. He couldn't keep it. He was like vomiting, all of it. Just like, he was so sick. But I I went up anyway. Like I started leading the next half of the, the route. And after a couple of pitches, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sick. And I was like started throwing up on myself and... The whole time I was just like, had a fever and chills and and I'm standing on these little knobs and I'm like, I've got the shivers and I was just like, oh God, I can't, I can't do this. But I just did not want to give up. And so he led pitches 15, 12 through 15, and then he just couldn't, he couldn't lead anymore. We had a film crew that was shooting this whole thing and their one of their fixed lines was like half a pitch away. So we were just like, you know what? Let's not blow this opportunity. Like we have to leave in three days. The weather is closing, our plane's coming. Like, let's just get to the top of this damn thing. And so we jumped on their ropes um, and we were able to jug their fixed lines and convert some to like, I would jug a pitch and then top rope Jim up. Kind of still adapted our way to the top. So it wasn't the first, we didn't, we didn't tag the first unassisted disabled that's still out there for someone else to get. Um, but I never really actually cared about that 
label, right? Like I probably do first one arm ascents every time I go climbing, maybe. <laughs> but um, but it was still it was still interesting because every single thing that went wrong with that trip, from the weather to the route being different than we wanted to marmots stealing our food. Um, having to aid climb through the rain to try to fix some pitches like that was my first time ever aid climbing was in the rain 400 feet up at the lotus flower tower with jim yelling at me how to do it <laughs> like so like everything that went wrong in the trip was something that I, I got to learn like if we had just shown up and freed it in a day and the weather was gorgeous i probably would have been like oh sure alpine climbing whatever it's pretty but it's boring but i think my fascination for alpine climbing out of that trip came the fascination with problem solving that you have to do on these trips, that it doesn't go the way you plan. You always have to have a plan B and plan C. And that's kind of addicting to me. We've been climbing together ever since. And actually, like, I think since that time, since 2017, I've climbed more routes, more pitches, with Mo than with anybody else. I used to think that once I ticked a certain grade or, or did something, I'd be like, cool, now I know what the max is. And I just, now I'm like, I'll never know what the max is. I don't think. Not not for me, not, not for us. And that's kind of cool. It's also a little frustrating that there is no finish line, but maybe there's not. Maybe, maybe climbing's cool because there never really is a finish line. You could be the best, most prolific climber. You could be the Andra of the world. And there's still something that he could do better there's still either a technical skill or a physical skill that he could do better. And I kind of find that pretty motivating about climbing. The work is never done. Like most climbers aren't ever going to try a climb, the Lotus Flower Tower. The, the barrier for something like that is just so high in terms of where it is, the amount of experience you need, all that, right? And I don't think that that's changed that much in my three decades of climbings. But like the day-to-day -day climbing, like cragging, there's so many developed crags. There's um, so many new bouldering areas. In terms of gyms, it's like I think sometimes the biggest hurdle is like figuring out which one you're going to go to. Has that sort of access or ease extended to the adaptive community? It's never been easier to be a person with a disability and go rock climbing than it has been today. There's so many nonprofits. Uh, almost every Craig and Classic with the Alpine Club has an adaptive component. It's just, it's so easy. And I'm so excited to see what the kids today do with that because I have to imagine I lost at least 15 years of my personal climbing career just not having opportunities and not feeling like I could do stuff. And again, a lot of that was in my head, but if I had known there were places for me and that I did belong there, I probably could have gotten out of my head a lot sooner. Can you talk about the uh, the adaptive climbing community in, in general? Yeah. Um, the adaptive climbing community is ki it's kind of made up of, there's a bunch of us who we, we go out climbing on a regular basis like regular climbers. Like we, we don't necessarily consider ourselves adaptive climbers. It's not necessarily part of our identity. Like, it, we just happen to be climbers who are missing limbs or whatever. But then there's this whole adaptive program community. People of different abilities or different levels of disability, um, climbing is now accessible to them. So for adaptive people where you have this additional sort of barrier to trying it, it's like gyms are a great place to to give it a first shot. 
like I, I actually, I volunteer for uh, Maine Adaptive Sports and Recreation, and we have a climbing program. I, I volunteer for that. There's Paradox Sports, of course, the Adaptive Climbing Group, like programs all across the country. And, and these programs are great. They're like discovery programs. They're take people to the gym, sometimes take them outside and let them experience climbing. But it's not necessarily an avenue towards independent adaptive climbing. So I'm Denny Kauska. I am the co-founder and executive director of Paracliff Hangers. And I live at the Gunks and I started climbing in 2015. So the, the movement seems to have just taken off in the last five years, or at least it seems that way to me. It, it also seems like that's kind of happened from the, the ground up. Is that how you see it? I don't think that we like invented the tone, right? Like I think that this tone organically already existed in in the hearts and minds of para communities that existed in the US before para cliffhangers, as well as para athletes wanting and, and being drawn to this feeling of an equal environment to reclaim our space, like reclaim that meetup, reclaim the definition of an adaptive sports organization. We'll be back with more after the break. Um, I have like a very weird case of MS where it just aggressively attacked my cervical spine and uh, it was the reason that my symptoms were so severe. It was like a year of me slowly losing function. My fingertips went numb and then the numbness spread through my entire body. Um, My legs eventually started locking. They still felt strong, but the knees would lock all the time and I would fall. My mobility is, is significantly affected. Denny, you started climbing after your MS diagnosis. Um, did you take to it immediately? Immediately, Like, was it a, a lightning bolt moment for you? Oh, I barely got off the ground. I, ba- I barely got off the ground. <laughs> I, like, did not do well. I did probably worse than expected. But, like, it's still fun, you know? Like... I, it was nice to to be in an environment that nobody knows me. There's like a freedom there in being looking pathetic, I guess. And uh, I knew my brother didn't care. And it was just like, whatever. I was playing around, having fun, trying to rainbow up a climb and not even get off the ground. It was a lot of fun. But yeah, like if the point was to get to the top, then I would have just taken the stairs. So I didn't get to the top, but it was, it was, it was still like a worthwhile experience. So yeah, he took me climbing. And uh, when I got back to New York, there was a gym that was like offering like a discounted 10 pack. And so I bought that and got into climbing. You, you founded Paracliff Hangers with your friend, Emily Seelenfreund in New York city. I'm curious about the, the, the when, the how, and the why. So we started September 2019 is when we first had our like bake sale, it's trying to raise money for adaptive climbing equipment at this gym. And it was an event with uh, Jim Ewing. He like was playing his video about an expedition he did. And we were just like fundraising, selling some cookies. There, you know, there are other organizations working out there, but you really seemed that you did this with a 
a, a deep sense of of intention to do something a little bit differently? I think parrot cliffhangers, like the biggest thing is that we're really started by paraclimbers. We've grown by paraclimbers. We're run by paraclimbers our co-founders, everything from, you know, our staff to our bylaws, you know, make sure that we continue to keep the para voice within our organization and kind of guiding us through our decisions. Yeah, we kind of like very organically and quickly took off. Um, In 2020, Emily decided to move to California from lack of having a para community there, she decided to start a para cliffhangers chapter. And so very quickly we became a two chapter organization. And then from there it really took off where it's like, okay, like chapters are, is like turning into a model where para climbers would approach us and being like, we want our own para cliffhangers community in our local gym. Like, can we make this happen? We encourage our para climbers to be equal members in our community. And so we encourage them to become belay certified. We encourage them to become friends with a quote unquote volunteer, which we really actually just call community member. We encourage them to have adventures and trips and to climb outside of just our meetups. That's what really attracted all the people to para cliffhangers and wanting to create their own para cliffhangers chapters. We had that luxury of being new and really being able to like look at the current environment and culture and create like a model, a modern model of inclusive community. So I know that in the adaptive community and, and in broader circles, there is a lot of discussion about the word inspiration. Can you can you explain that for us? Where does where does inspiration fit in? Where does it not fit in? And it's like, well, when it comes to people with disabilities, like these para-athletes that you're also talking to, Mo Beck, um, Jim, they have made so many choices in their lives to be able to accomplish the things that they have accomplished. Just as every athlete, every able-bodied athlete has also made really intense choices in their lives. And it takes a lot of sacrifice. And those choices aren't one-time choices, but they're choices that you have to make every single day to show up, to commit to this thing that you have dedicated your life to. And in this case, it's climbing. And when it comes to a para-athlete just being told that they're inspirational or being used as inspiration porn, it takes away all of that hard work. It takes away all of that accomplishment and all of those choices and all that sacrifice. And just makes it seem like it's only because they're different. And here, let's zoom in on on that difference. I can't tell you how often people do come up to you and tell you how inspirational it is. And you'll be in Starbucks getting a coffee and someone will tell you you're inspirational. And it makes you feel like you're not actually supposed to be out. It makes you feel very uninvited from the environment that like somehow going out and going to Starbucks and getting a coffee is supposed to really be this like monumental feat. I get this all the time at the gym, actually. It's like, it's so great that you're out here climbing. And I'm like, why the fuck wouldn't I be, right? <laughs> and like, I think people think that, and they don't mean any harm, right? Like, like everyone's super nice and they mean well. But when you say that, oh, wow, so good for you for being out here. Yeah, there's a, there's a deeper implication by saying good for you for like being out here. It, it's it's implying that I'm you're not expecting to see me there, which then says that this isn't a space for me. I don't belong here. And that's kind of the long tangled web of why it be an inspiration, a good for you. That's why it feels icky because someone can also say that and not do anything with it. Like that's just, it's so token. It's the thank you for your service. 
our experiences for us and that we're not here to inspire other people without disabilities. If anything, we're here to inspire ourselves and maybe to inspire our own communities. I'm allowed to be average. I'm allowed to be here and just exist and just have a good time. So Jim mentioned that like a lot of times the the adaptive programs are discovery oriented, but they don't often like carry a climber forward. You all have been supporting the journey through competition. Tell me about that. Our our requirements, if if someone wants to join us at nationals or in competition, is that they have to take their training seriously and they have to view themselves as an athlete and take their athleticism seriously. And if that means that their main goal is to climb on a loose belay, which for some different disabilities is such an accomplishment. We're fine with that and we're happy to give them the same kind of support that we give someone that we know is probably going to come to home with a medal. Um, and that's something that's really important right now in the climbing ecosystem and why we are trying so hard to build this climbing paraclimbing community that's so vast and gives permission to just exist and be average is because paraclimbing itself is such a new sport and you have these greats that have pushed themselves really hard and accomplished really great feats as athletes themselves and as para-athletes but you know yeah, Ben Mayford is fantastic. He he constantly gets gold at nationals and he regularly podiums at World Cups and, and World Championship. And he's like, I want I want people to compete with, you know, I want more people to compete with. I don't want to just keep getting these medals because no one else is making the same sacrifices. So it's about expanding that pool of competitors, expanding how many people get to experience all of the positives of competition and of climbing. And then allowing them to organically in themselves choose whether or not they want to pursue competitive climbing. And that will increase the amount of serious competitive climbers. It will give more respect to to the incredible paraclimbers that are getting gold and, and podium and making these incredible accomplishments. So yeah, that's where Para Cliffhangers is, is where we want to really just kind of make sure that we're expanding the community, the entire community of paraclimbing um, across the U.S. so that we can grow this sport because it is the most accessible sport out of all of the adaptive sports and currently still in its infancy. So we got a lot to catch up on with uh, the Paralympics coming up soon. Yeah, and the community is certainly at an, it's at an inflection point right now. Like I've been feeling it for the last maybe two years. As far as affinity groups or minority groups within climbing, adaptive climbing was probably one of the first, like probably women's climbing groups came and then paraclimbing. Um, and then after that was BIPOC, LGBTQ, you know, all of the other affinity groups that we're seeing that are awesome. Um, but ours is one of the oldest and yet it's taken the longest, I think, for us to kind of come into our own. Whereas like you would never see a white dude leading a brown girls climb clinic, right? But in our world, we're still seeing lots of like, awesome able-bodied allies taking taking charge kind of, and there's still that kind of savior complex sometimes. Um, and then the last two years, I've really seen the community start to take charge of itself from within, where we now have disabled SPI certified guides and we now have disabled route setters and coaches. And so seeing that shift finally happen for my own community after watching other communities make that move um, has been really, really cool. When you start, you always need outside help, right? And we still do. Like everyone always still needs outside help because um, the community isn't like a, it's not a clear ring, right? Like it's not like, well, you're not a part of this. Um, 
you know, we have so many great allies and supporters, but to watch that shift to like, hey, I can, like I, I help run the Adaptive Climbers Festival and 85% of our instructors are adaptive. And that would have been impossible five to six years ago. We just wouldn't have had the people with enough expertise and skill um, to teach those clinics. And then all of a sudden here we are. And it's been really cool to sort of see that, see that wave come through. Um, and so rather than be jealous of the new generation, which I very much am, I'm also just so excited to see what they do. So like now we're at a point where we have our own disabled instructors and disabled guides, but I'm working on a film project and the filmmakers are like, is it okay? Like you're, you talk so much now about representation within the community. Like, is it okay that we're not disabled and we're making this movie? And I'm like, well, for now it is, but I'm sure in 10 years we will have a disabled climbing filmmaking crew to choose from. Um, and so just watch that growth. It's really, it's really limitless. I'm so excited to see it. I hope they'll let me still hang. So you've said that, that you think that humanity will end disability in the 21st century. What's, what does that mean? And, and what, what's your vision for the future? I actually believe that that's a conservative statement. I think, you know, at 50 years from now, most of what we labeled as disabled bodies now will be eliminated through tremendous advances in many areas of science and technology. Um, it's just the innovation is accelerating faster and faster and faster. And that's, you know, it's, it's quite hard for us to imagine a world without all these disabilities, right? Including cognitive, like severe depression, schizophrenia, and so on. We can't imagine a world without severe depression, without paralysis, without seeing impairment, and so on. Yeah, I see it. And I'm, I'm actually con seriously considering going under the knife myself. Yeah, what, what are the options for you? Like, what would that mean? So, yeah, the, the current menu of options is I, I would I would get a titanium shaft that will go through my skin and into my residual bone, my tibia. It's an osseointegration. So my bone in about a six-month period would grow into the titanium. And then I'd mechanically bolt the, the bionic limb or the climbing leg or whatever I'm using to that shaft that comes out of my skin. And is the idea that that would be more comfortable overall than having to put the, the ball in the socket sort of thing? 100%. And then that titanium shaft has 16 fine wire electrical leads that will go into cuffs and electrodes as an interface to my nervous system. And then we would do those soft tissues. We'd connect my muscles in anatomically appropriate ways. We put little magnetic spheres in each of the muscles where we can track the movement of the tissues by tracking the change in the magnetic field. So basically the hope is by going under the knife with a somewhat long recovery of six to nine months, I would be able to stand, walk pain-free and I'd be able to think and, and move my bionic limb and actually feel its movements. On the one hand, that sounds incredible. And I'm like, oh, you should do that. That's amazing. On the other hand, I'm like, man, that sounds like you're only two steps away from being the villain in like a Superman movie or something. You know, it's like, right. you know, that's the kind of thing where like one thing goes wrong and 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 now you're you're a, you know, Marvel supervillain or something. <laughs> like, like you better hope the uh, the lab doesn't get hit by lightning while they're doing <laughs> surgery. You're for sure going to wind up as like a right. nine foot tall enraged MIT <laughs> professor or something. Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. 
There is an infection risk, but it's fairly low. I'm still in the decision-making process. And we're, we're now building climbing legs for me that are motorized um, and, uh, you know, with the brain control and whatnot. So for the first time, I'm, I'm using my resources and engineering design skills to, to really revisit the climbing limb and what it should look like and how it should behave. Yeah. How often are you still able, able to climb as a distinguished professor? Are you, you yeah, guys climbing still part of your life? Yeah, more and more. I actually built a little climbing gym in my home, so I'm sort of starting to get back into it. And so with this next generation of prosthetic limbs that you're talking about and the Ewing procedure and everything, you are creating cyborgs. 100%. When I go under the knife, I'll finally become a cyborg. Life is, life is long, if we're lucky. And it's absolutely surprising. You know, if you would have asked me when I was in high school, not able to take 10% of a hundred, you know, that I would be sitting here today, I would, I would never ever believe you. And uh, yeah, of course it was tremendously effective um, to go through that process of not being able to move, have, having my legs amputated, lying in bed, to getting those first artificial limbs that were so painful and non-adaptive to to what I'm able to do now. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary arc. And also in the, in the early days, you know, the tremendous gift of Albert Dow, the rescuer that was hit by the avalanche. Albert was this selfless human that just decided to go out in the blizzard that day looking for two young boys. Um, so I was and continue to be motivated by Albert's sacrifice. Um, just wanting to do something in this life, wanting to do good, wanting to help others. And my, my passion, my gift is invention. That's what I do. So that's how I help people. So it's, it's just amazing what one can do in life if with, with energy and focus and some good luck and good friends. If you just keep, keep at it, keep the vision, be brave enough to have vision, um, you can go to extraordinary places. Thank you, Hugh, Mo, Jim, and Denny for sharing your stories. If you're looking for a deeper dive, we've included some links and resources in the show notes. We will be back next spring with all new episodes. In the meantime, you can check out our YouTube page for deeper, uncut interview clips and other shenanigans. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced, written, and edited by Marco Seiler-Gonzalez and me, Fitzko Hall. Additional editing, mixing, and mastering by Evan Phillips. Music today by Baleen, Sunshape, Joey Cantor, Drexler, and Joya. Tracks are courtesy of Track Club. Lauren Delaney-Miller is our producer. Our social media and YouTube producer is Skylar Perwins. Our executive producers for ARCs, our sports are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape and Beer. Thanks for listening.